Hey, welcome to the Back Yourself Show, where each week I interview the best investors and founders of early stage companies. And I try to uncover their secrets for success so you can take those secrets and back yourself with your own ventures. I'm your host, I'm Tom Ferry. I'm the CEO of Stakester and I'm a first time founder. So I've been through exactly what you've been through. And I've been through that process of not being able to find the answers to some of those key questions you have about your startup. So we're here to try and uncover those. Please like and subscribe. And if you want to get in contact, please drop us a note at pod at stakester.com. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Backshelf Show. This week, I am super pumped to have on Rob Nyes from Hoxton Ventures. He has not one, not two, but three unicorns under his belt. Um, so without further ado, let's dig straight into this one. Rob, thanks for coming on the show. Imagine we're on the first date. Tell me about yourself. Tell me, tell me about yourself. Yeah. Excited to be here. Um, studied science at uni and I went to Intel. So I had a pretty stable job during that period. So it was good, uh, good fun, good, in, good times to be there overall in general. Always had a technical background. So I was doing lots of fun things inside Intel. Um, studied at Stanford because Intel had a wonderful deal where they paid uh, Leland Stanford Jr. a lot of money for me to go there. So. What? That's good. And then joined Google back when it was still pretty tiny. So I had a friend working there, thought it was kind of a cool company. And this is still, remember, uh, the post.com hangover when people still thought these companies were going to go to zero. And it was still a pretty risky move at the time to go to a Google because people thought this was you know, 99 all over again. Um, but went and joined. It looked like a cool place. And I figured, what the hell? I'm young. I, what happens if I lose everything? I start back over again. I'll be okay. Uh, but it turned out to be a good bet. Uh, we, we went public uh, a little under a year later. Um, so I was a product manager there. So crazy, Whoa. crazy place. Um, amazing set of people, you know, once in a generation set of people to be around. I mean, I sat two cubes down from like Hunter Walk, who now runs Homebrew. Um, I shared a cube with Tom Tungus, who's at Redpoint. Um, I shared a, I was next door neighbors to Josh McFarland, who's now a VC at uh, Gridlock. So it was an amazing place and time for amazing talent. You know, Sundar, who's now the CEO, was one floor beneath us. You know, it's the kind of people you bump into, you know, every day and have meetings with. So it was a, a really unique place and time. You kind of, I hope I appreciated it enough when it was happening. But you, you look back fondly at the, the collection of people. And it's a real, it was a rare you know, collection of just great talent all in one place at one time. So just digging into that a little bit, because I think a lot of people listen to that thinking like, damn, that's a CV, Rob. Yeah, geez, Stanford, Intel, Google, right in 99. I mean, it's incredible. So when I, I talk about this a lot, and it's quite a big, a big thing, um, a lot, a lot of success in startups, I believe, comes down to being able to recruit and track the best talent. Okay, so you've just mentioned a group of people there that are absolutely sensational that were just sat just around you all the time at Google at the time. So is that that, did Google attract the best people or did it just so happen that Google got people who were great, but they were nurtured into being great people? What was the, what was the magic there? And then why did you go there? So it was a, it was a combination. So to, to answer the question in sequence, you know, there was a unique time, right? After 2001, the value was decimated, right? I mean, people were losing their jobs. People had crazy tax bills for gains that never actually happened because of the U.S. tax system. Um, it was a weird place. And there were a lot of people that were probably gettable that were either historically at places they just were comfortable and didn't want to leave or people who thought they had a good job but did, didn't have it. So, you know, fortune favors the, the rich in this case that Google had raised a bunch of money. It wasn't really burning money. So they could afford to, to hoover up people that were otherwise simply unavailable. So if you look at the hiring, you know, in the early days, it was kind of friends of the, of the, the founders from Stanford. It was a very tight network. And they were able to hire people like Jeff Dean, you know, 
prominent computer scientist out of, I think he came out of Park, the Palo Alto Research Center. And you got these people that were kind of once in a lifetime hires that normally would never go to a startup, but you know, for whatever reason, you know, they were something before, something collapsed. All of a sudden, you know, Google was well-funded and then had the ability to hire these people that are way out of our league. So if you look at the hiring from like 2002 to 2004 and five, you know, we we're able to hire crazy amounts of talent. And then it kind of starts this virtuous circle where once you have, you know, the, these great computer scientists and great product managers and, and great marketers, you know, they then attract other people around them into their orbit. So then you can keep upgrading, right, where every new person's hiring people that they know, they trust, people that are better than them. And then likewise, you know, thinking of the, the, the trickle-down effect, they're then training up the next generation. And I think, you know, one of the reasons the Valley has been really successful is that you look at the history of like product management, for example, and, you know, a lot of it's sort of trial by, trial by fire where you launch a, a website and you learn what works, what doesn't, where to put what things, but it's all institutional knowledge. And it's kind of, it's like bricklaying. It's an apprenticeship business. You can't really teach it in the classroom. I guess maybe you could teach part of bricklaying in a classroom, but in general, it's something you kind of learn by being around other people that are great. You know, when I joined, I had a technical background, but I'd never done real product management before, but I was really fortunate that there were probably you know, 20 or 30 other great product managers who are all a bit older that came out of eBay and came out of Amazon and came out of Excite.com and came out of, you know, all the, the predecessors. And you see this knowledge kind of collect over time where people learn what mistakes not to make, people learn what works, the ideas get socialized and shared. So, I mean, to me, that that's the real, you know, the benefit of the Valley. If you look, you know, every company now generally has OKRs, right? And OKRs are actually a pretty new concept. I mean, even in 2004, they weren't terribly well known. I mean, Google sort of institutionalized them in the Valley, and that flowed into Facebook, and that flowed into Uber, and you know, it's now it's a pretty default thing for startups around the world. And if you look back before that, a lot of OKRs are a concept that Intel had. That so my old boss was Susan Wojcicki. Um, she now runs YouTube, but before that, she was at Intel, and she was one of my my hiring managers and my boss. But Intel had the idea that Andy Grove had what they called IMBOs, you know, Management's by Objective, I think was the, was the acronym. But you know, that's really OKR, it's just with a different name. So if you think about it, you know, these are ideas that have been around for 20 years. You know, they just kind of filter, filter through, percolate, you know, sometimes adapt, and then eventually kind of become default. So now you know, every company in London that we talk to usually has, you know, they at least know what OKRs, OKRs are if they don't already have them set. But it's become sort of a general thing that, you know, they're probably teaching it in business school now, but it came from the bottoms up, you know, it came from you know, Andy Grove or it came from someone before him that gave him the idea. Nice. Just for our audience, just quickly, OKRs, give me an example and tell me what it means. Objective and key result. So for every part of your job, you define, you know, what are the high level objectives? And then usually every quarter you set a key result or key results, plural, depending on what you're doing. So if my objective is, you know, launch AdSense for newspapers or whatever the product is, you know, the high level objective is, is you know, what's the goal that your boss sees, then you know, what are the key results you can map to that shows that you either gotten there or you got halfway there so you can then get graded. And the idea is, you know, every quarter, you know, from the CEO on downward, everyone should have a set of their own OKRs and they should be graded around you know, how well did you do, you know, called on a scale of zero to 10 or A through F if you see the American system. Um, but you should have an idea. And at Google, they're very transparent where everyone had to post their OKRs publicly every quarter from the CEO on downward. And then every quarter you had to post your own grades. And, you know, people would call you out if your grades weren't fair. So, you know, you, you might have had a, a partial success. So give yourself a C if you got halfway there. Maybe give yourself an F, you know. It, it's meant to be sort of without blame. But the idea is, you know, expose the different you know, bits of the pieces of the system. Expose, you know, where you failed, why you failed, if there was failure. 
and you know, frankly, if you give yourself all top marks, then you kind of ask, why didn't you set a goal higher? So there, there, there should be some natural failures built in where you didn't stretch hard enough. So you kind of are skeptical if someone's always getting A's or top marks. You know, why are they stretching even harder? You know, they should, if they're hitting all their goals so easily, should they be setting their goals higher? But it creates, you know, a good amount of sunshine into the organization. So you could pick anyone in the company and literally go to their, their homepage inside the company and see, you know, what is Thomas's goal for this quarter? I have no idea. I can go and look it up and see, and I can see the past, you know, six quarters of information or whatever, however far back it goes. Those are, it's a pretty, you know, I, again, I think it's a bog standard idea now, but back then it was still fairly innovative. And, you know, it's helpful. It lets you see what's going on in the company, what your peers are doing. You know, if someone looks like a freeloader, you can see, you know, are they freeloading, freeloading or maybe something they're doing is just very discreet or very slow or dependent on other things. But it gives you a really good view in the organization that normally would be very siloed into that manager. All of a sudden, you know, everyone's kind of in a way a manager, but in hopefully a positive sense. I really like that. Um, I'm somebody who's a big fan of measuring success. The um, but there's a question. So this guy, uh, Jeff Morris Jr. You know, he one of the uh, the key guys of monetization at Tinder. Um, shout out to the guy, I love him. But the he he posed a question the other week on Twitter, and I'm interested to get your view on it. Now we're on the subject, which I didn't think we we're going to get onto. But when's the right time for a startup to start putting in OKRs? Because when do you know what they should be or when they should be delivered by? I think it's always a good idea to have you know, your objectives in mind. I think you know if you don't have an, have an objective, even if it's it's obvious, you know, jot down the obvious. You know, it'll change over time. It'll you know, it may you may have to adapt it. But I think from day one, it's good to jot these things down. You know, talk about it with whoever's around you, whether it's your partner or your business partner or your husband or wife or your investors. You know, for most of our companies, the, the founders show us the kind of high level OKRs they have. And of course, you know, if you're the CEO, you know, your OKRs depend on you know, your subordinates' OKRs. As the org gets really big, you know, your high level is, is you know, kind of blended from many different people. But the idea is that it should all roll up in some way or another where whatever you're doing has some final objective or it feeds into someone else's objective in the company. So I think even from you know, a two-person founding team, you, know, you probably ought to clarify, you know, are you aligned on the objectives? Do you agree what the key results should be? And then you know, iterate on that as you go, as they change. I love that a lot. Okay, so I interrupted you, sorry. So you were in San Francisco. You were being unimaginably successful within Google and Intel. And then what? What happened next? Yeah, so while I was at Intel, I'd spent a bit of time overseas doing some expat assignments for them. And and it was pretty clear to me, you know, the world was flattening, you know, kind of all the the boring, you know, Malcolm Gladwell type stuff, you know, that the world's going to be flat over our lifetime. So I told Susan when I joined, look, you know, I, I just come back from Bogota for a work assignment. And at the time, Google really had one office. So I was like, look, Susan, at some point, I want to go back overseas. You know, at some point, well, when it makes sense, let's do that. And she's like, yeah, that's a great idea. So after I invested, I was kind of thinking about what to do next. You know, I still was you know, in a comfortable place. Um, was thinking about going to Facebook, had an offer to go there, which would, would have been a very good, very cash generative offer. But it was kind of, you know, four more years of the same thing, commuting down from San Francisco to the Valley every day. You know, at the time, if you're not in California, if you haven't been to California, you know, back in 2003, four, five, you could commute from San Francisco City down to like Mountain View, where Google is. It's about 35 miles. You could do it about 55 minutes on a good day. So it's a, a long drive, but, you know, very pleasant in a, in a big American car. By 2008, you know, as, as things were heating up again, traffic, you know, got insane. We're to the point you'd probably take on a good day, an hour and 15. And you could see every year you're kind of adding five or 10 minutes on your commute. So it kind of became, it became clear to me, you know, the valley was getting really saturated and a bit, you know, untenable. And, you know, did I have four more years of that left in me? So 
long story short, um, you know, we had an office in London. It kind of made sense as the most logical place to go. So on a lark, I said, cool, I'll go to London and try it out for a while. You know, probably stay a year or two, then come back. And then, yeah, next thing you know, 13 years later, here I am sitting in uh, sitting wow, in the you- you made the right decision leaving San Francisco by all accounts. No one wants to live there anymore. So, uh, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit sad. I mean, I think, you know, around, you know, around that time between like 06 and 2010, you know, the city just kind of changed a lot. A lot of the old things kind of shut down and every year it got more and more congested, more and more kind of led by tech and lost a bit of the charms. And then the crime started to go up, traffic got worse. So, you know, it's still an amazing place for tech. And I think for anyone's tech career, it's probably useful to be there for at least a few years because so much of the network, you know, still coalesces there. But the quality of life has gone down. You know, a, a lot of our friends, you know, from that time are now, you know, they've gone to LA, they've gone to Denver, they've gone to New York in some cases. Um, yeah, I think that there's been a fairly big exodus where you kind of go there, you, you punch your card, you know, you build a network, you know, you build your career. And then as soon as you're stable enough, you know, you likely, likely leave. It's, it's not a great place to raise a family quite so much as it was historically. Do you think that um, you mentioned that actually very briefly, and I, <laughs> it's something that we talk about a lot on the show. That stage of building your network is kind of pivotal to the rest of your career sometimes, isn't it? That period where like you have to, <clears throat> I said the best piece of advice I've ever heard on the show was from um, a guy called Matt Stafford who runs Nine Others. And mm-hmm. his advice is build your network before you need it. You know, and it's like, it's one of those things where like, I imagine in your line of work now, a lot of the people you work with and some of your deal flow and your LPs and so forth are people you met when you're working at Intel and Google. Like when you did that, you know, that we'll call it the VC apprenticeship, you know, and all those skills that, you know, you and those people you met at Stanford, they're people that you probably work very closely still with now and probably still part of the network. Is that fair? No, hundred percent. I mean, I think, you know, for anyone that wants to be in tech, especially, you know, we get pinged all the time from folks that want to be in VC or want to start companies, you know, there's no better way to, to build a network than, you know, usually being in California, building a network from ground zero, you know, if not California, for sure, London, but you need to be around like-minded people because, you know, the, the guys that were, or the, the people that you were drinking beer with when you were 25 are the ones that are now, you know, running YouTube or running Uber or, you know, uh, you know the, and it's not always the, the intuitive ones, right? So it's funny that, you know, the, the people you most expect aren't always the most successful. The people that you suspect will be okay don't always turn out as successful as you'd think. But you know, it's good to cast a wide net. It's a very American mindset, right? I mean, I think in England, people tend to have a much narrower set of friends. Like most of my, my Oxford friends still mostly hang out with their Oxford friends, which is perfectly fine. They're all very successful. Um, you know, the Americans tend to cast a very wide net. So it's beneficial because you go there, you go to barbecues, you go to people's houses and you realize, oh, this is really cool. I guess get invited to the VP of Salesforce's house. I'm going to go hang out. And then you bump into 10 people in tech. So you kind of, A, you can't avoid tech. So you better like you better like tech because you're not going to find anyone talking about much else. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the depth of people you meet is really unparalleled. It's funny, yeah. I mean, I um, I can attest to that. My uh, one of my co-founders, um, I went to their his wedding. Two of my co-founders, they got married, and I went to their wedding. And uh, most of the, a lot of my advisors, I met at that wedding. <laughs> so yeah. it's uh, it's just one of those things, isn't it, where you connect with them. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favorite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. 
So, okay, so fast forward. So you've come over to London. You made the best life choice you can ever make moving to Hampstead. <laughs> um, we're neighbours. Um, and uh, so what is it about... And so when you came over here and you decided to start Hoxton, what was the problem that you saw? Because people... I say this to people all the time. People always don't realise, like, people get shitty about VCs and say they're not founders. You know, they're not. They're just spreadsheet <laughs> guys. But the reality of it is, like, if you're starting a VC... You're not starting and thinking, I'm going to do this the same way as everyone else. Actually, some, that's not true. Some VCs are looking to do it the same way as everyone else <laughs> because it can be a bit cushy or whatever. But a lot of them are starting it because they want to do it differently. They want, they see a gap. They see it, something that isn't being done well. And they believe that they have the skill to do it better. And that's the nature of being a founder. It just so happens you're starting a VC rather than a, a tech startup. What was the yeah. problem that you saw that you thought that you could change the so by you know by 2008 when i came over here um so i i had joined fidelity um they have a venture capital arm it's now called eight roads so i had found an opportunity there and thought it'd be a fun way to kind of learn learn for a couple of years and again go back to california i had met my now partner he was doing the same thing at excel after going to business school and both of us looked around and you know if you compare at the same point in time you know, we had friends in california that were leaving google or leaving facebook after their ipo to go start funds or do things and you know the mentality was very different right it's, it's all about growth it's shooting for you know, how do i build a multi-billion dollar company you know the, the the mark zuckerberg how do i i want to take over the world kind of mentality and we saw that you know the, the vcs were kind of lined up the same way that most vcs thought that way if it's not going to be a billion dollar billion dollar deal it's not really a venture deal full stop and historically, you know, most European venture was, you know, PE guys, and I say guys specifically, PE guys, you know, in venture clothing that were thinking about, great, how soon do we get to EBITDA break even? How soon, you know, can we limit losses? And so it, it's kind of a counter growth mindset. So if a founder is thinking about getting to break even, it almost means by definition, they're not thinking about growth. And so if you looked around Europe and, and particularly, you know, outside London, you know, very few firms thought that way. And our view was, look, you know, A, it's still an undercapitalized market. I mean, compared to California or compared to Israel, there's still less capital available here than you know the market might otherwise suggest. Um, you know, there's still it's still not zero sum on the venture side. So even if you're raising a standard fund, there's still probably room for a lot more standard funds if they're thinking along the right way. And then separately, you know, we just saw a, you know an industry that was mostly dominated by folks that were around since the '90s and hadn't really changed much since the 90s. And a lot of firms, you know, they had done maybe a couple of internet deals in 2000, got burnt, and were still really skeptical of the internet, even like 2008, or they kind of realized they needed to be doing internet deals, but hadn't done any yet. So it was, it was a different world. So we thought, look, you know, it could be we're just the one-eyed man in, in the land of the blind, but at least we'll have a, a decent shot if we can raise some money. But, you know, I mean, raising a fund is hard. I mean, it's probably gotten a little bit easier over time. And, and for us, it's been easier as we've had some early successes. But, you know, I mean, uh, we have much empathy with founders. I mean, it's, it's hard for us to call ourselves founders quite the same because, you know, we're obviously diversified and usually we can pay ourselves a decent salary earlier on than, than some startups can. But yeah, I mean, your product is is you, your network, you know, how good a deck you can put together, maybe some early track record, and you're selling yourself every single day to LPs, and most of them are even more conservative because if you think about you know pensions and how money comes into the ecosystem, you know, in the U.S., there's lots of pensions and endowments and people that like venture that have made a lot of money in venture. You know, if you put money into Sequoia 20 years ago, you're very happy with that, and you want to put a lot more money into venture because it's been your best performing asset class probably. Here, you know, most of the folks on the institutional side are a just more risk averse because they're not they don't need to hit as high growth targets, 
And B, a lot of them have lost money in venture because the 90s weren't so good for venture here. So if they were you know, a long-standing institution, you know, most of them aren't really that excited about putting more money into venture. So we're kind of selling ice to Eskimos. So it's not a very sought-after product. Again, it's gotten better every year, and, and I, I can't complain about it. But it's not, it's not like California where you know, if you have a good brand or a good you know, Twitter handle, you can raise 20 million bucks just by going out and talking to 10 friends. Yeah. Well, you have great Twitter handle. You're Rob K. I mean, geez. I you were there I early, right? <laughs> I, I, I should have gotten robbed. The only reason I took Rob K, because the, the founders of, of Twitter were Google guys, right? I mean, Evan Williams sat like two, well, one building over from us. And so, you know, they were doing their, their beta and it was still SMS based then, I think. I remember doing SMS first, um, but I should have just taken Rob. I don't know why I took Rob K. I had Rob K at Google back in the day. So I just went with Rob K because I think there was another Rob on our, wow, on our it's, team. It's still but pretty I regret, I regret taking Rob. I should have just taken Rob. 2020 yeah, hindsight. I'm, I'm basically Tom F42169777654 or something like that. Yeah, um, I'm not actually, I'm at the back self show. A back self pod, sorry. Edit that out. Okay, so, um, okay. Now that, I, I want to go into that a little bit um, because it's quite interesting what you're saying there. So I'm someone who, I love pitching. It's For me, it's like, it's, it's the jam. As a CEO, like that's when you're making your magic. You're pitching to an employee about coming and working for you. You're... You're pitching to someone to try and raise some money. You're pitching to a partner. I love that. That's the, for me, that's showtime, like as a founder. <laughs> like, but for you guys, it must be quite similar, right? You know, like, you know, you're, people don't get this about VCs. Like, they get pitched all day, but you've got to pitch yourself to an LP. You've got to go to someone and say, hey, hey guys, you've got to go and put some money in my pocket. And BTW, 85% of these companies are shit and they're not going to work out. <laughs> it's like, what? Like, how do you talk? I mean, it's hard, right? So how do you, yes. how do you, how do you differentiate yourself? How do you sell that story to an LP? Get some empathy here amongst the listeners who will think that you've got an easy job. Yeah, it's like selling used cars to people who don't really want to buy used cars. You know, you have to find every okay. angle, find every nuance that makes, you know, that's exciting. And the dynamic is a bit different too, right? Because if you're, if you're thinking about a company, you know, most companies have a fundraising window where they're going to raise money. They talk to 20 folks. Maybe they get one or two term sheets. If they're lucky, they turn it into a bidding process. And it's kind of done, you know, underscore over with funds, you know, there, it's never really, it's rare that funds are oversubscribed in Europe. So generally most LPs, especially here, know that, you know, it's always in my interest to be the last money in. You know, with a, with a venture deal, people typically are happy to be the first money in. They want to get their full allocation. So, you know, then you get bidding wars. But with a fund, you know, everyone wants to be the last check-in because there's no incentive to take risk really early. You know, you want to see who else is in the fund. Are there other credible investors? And then, you know, you look at track records. So for, especially for new managers, you know, there's a lot of new managers on the market. Um, it's, it's doubly hard because unless you have a great track record already, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that until you have track record, you can't raise until you can raise, you can't invest enough to build a track record. So maybe you have an angel book, or you have other things you can show as a proxy, but you're kind of selling a thin, a thin file of your history and hoping people can buy your story or will believe why founders will want to take your money. Because you know, in a way, in a, in a, in a founder-led market like today, you're also selling yourself too, that you know, we're you know, constantly, as founders are selling us, but we're selling ourselves on them. You know, good, good founders, especially in competitive deals, know that you know, they can often pick among different investors. So we're kind of also hustling to say, hey, you know, here's how we're different than other funds. You know, here, here's our network and you know, here are the people we work with. You know, here are the co-investors we're going to bring in alongside of you or here are the angels that we know that are right in your space. So, you know, it's a two-sided sale where you're kind of selling yourself upstream to LPs and downstream to founders and, you know, founders, of course, selling you. But, you know, more, it feels like you're kind of always, you're always in the middle. So again, it, it's, a, it's a fun job, but a lot of sales and, and oftentimes what you're selling upstream is not what gets people terribly excited. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I am, um, and look, having, 
you mentioned I was very blessed recently, which is close around, and I was fortunate enough to be in a position where I had more than one offer. And you see how how the dynamic changes very quickly. You know, when that relationship, when you have that, it's very interesting because a lot of people go into there into a discussion and don't realize that you know VCs they they want to find the good deals, and if you've got a good deal, they want it, right? They they're trying to get hold of it. That's uh, of you know, really, you've got to find the best stuff. So how do you differentiate? So let's talk about Hoxton specifically. So you guys, I mean, three unicorns. It's pretty sexy. Um, Dark Trace, Deliveroo, and Arthur. Babylon. That's it. And so you're absolutely smashing it. You've got some really great people on there. I saw you just recently had an acquisition with Super Awesome. I mean, which is super awesome. Congrats. It is what literally. are you what are you doing that is making everyone else look grossly incompetent? What is it? <laughs> what is it? What are you doing that's like making you smash it compared to everyone else? Because I imagine after the show, like, you know for our humble couple of K of listeners, they're going to be like, dude, I want to work with this guy because you've got some kind of Midas touch right now. What is it you guys are doing differently that you think has led to that success? Honestly, I think we're in, we're in the right market at the right time and we've been pretty open-minded about things. So if you look at our deals, you know, we're very sector agnostic. So, you know, we'll do consumer, we'll do B2B, we'll do deep tech. You know, we're very open to the right opportunity. I think in this business, you know, lightning doesn't strike strike twice the same place. In California, that there's enough specialism where you can be just a cybersecurity fund and do 20 cybersecurity deals over three years and still have, you know, a great fund with, you know, two unicorns in it, if you consider that kind of the, the threshold, say. Here, you know, I think you have to be really opportunistic that, you know, we might do a marketplace in Kiev, we might do a B2B company in Vienna, we might do a consumer deal in London. And you have to be really open-minded that, you know, there's lots of different opportunities that look very different. Um, and for us in particular, you know, I think this our selection process is very focused on finding things that are very global from day one. So there, there's lots of good companies we see that are, you know, very UK focused that are, you know, they want to be the number one in property in the UK or, you know, whatever it is, consumer lending in the UK. And it's hard, you know, Europe is still really fragmented. So, you know, we'll see the same idea happening in France and Germany, but it's very hard to cross borders. And, you know, not many companies, except maybe on the consumer side, not many have, have gone across Europe as a primary strategy and, and done significantly well. You know, there's a lot of friction going between UK to France or France to Germany. So what we see and what we usually select for are kind of folks that start in Europe and take advantage of, you know, there's a lot of great talent, you know, just as good as California talent. Um, you know, salaries are lower here than they are in California, so you get more bang for the buck. Um, but you can still access the same customers the same way. So sell to the Americans, but do all your work here. So build the company here, design it, engineer it. You know, if you have to import some talent in certain roles, try and import people that have you know come out of Google or Facebook or you know Salesforce or whatever have you. Um, but you know, it's almost an arbit- a geographic arbitrage that you know you're selling into the U.S. You're taking advantage of that the size of that market and the relative cohesion of that market that we don't have here in Europe. By comparison, of course, you know, still sell in Europe. I mean, don't exclude it necessarily. But if you're going to spend any effort, you know, on marketing and 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 particular focus, you know, usually going after the U.S. is is a better, higher ROI at least in the early days. But I think for almost all of our companies, you know, they've started here. They've taken advantage of, of local opportunities. So if you're doing digital health. You can do great things with NHS. They're very easy to work with. So you can do a lot of your R&D here that would be a lot more expensive. Like here, you can get access to data very inexpensively um, because it's seen as a, a public good. Whereas in the U.S., hospitals knows they, they can charge a lot of money for data because the, everything's very capitalist. And so hospitals know if you want to access their data, great, pay us a million bucks and we'll give you a, a data set you can train your AI on. So and it, there's these weird arbitrages where you find different pockets of you know, advantages and, you know, add up the comparative advantage and you're better off than an American company at that stage in time. Of course, then you have to go and compete and convince 
Kaiser or you know one of the big American insurance companies to then buy you. So you're a little bit of a disadvantage there or work with you, I should say. Um, but yeah, the, the playing field's still fairly level. So if you find local advantages, you can take advantage of the fact that there's more capital there. That's really so digging into that again. Lots of digging here. Um, I'm loving what you're saying, by the way, Rob. This is good. This is going to be a good episode. I can feel it. The uh, audience. Um, so you, um, how as as a as a founder, I firmly believe that your ability to attract the best talent really differentiates you from other people a lot of the time. You know, because tech stars, amazing said, good friend of mine. Um, I I've got two Techstars MDs as investors. I'm a love Techstars, and I've got <laughs> and uh, Max Kelly and Eamon Carey, two great guys on the show. And they always say um, the 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 top six things when you're investing in a business are team, 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 market traction, idea. And I firmly believe that the team's the best thing. So you mentioned there, you know, um, very casually off the cuff, go and get some people from Google and Salesforce <laughs> and so on. How does the humble founder who's just, you know, he's just there, he's just closed a small, you know, pre-seed or seed round. And he's like, right, I've got to go and get myself some, some sexy people to come and join my company. How do you attract those people? How do you make your business? Because you must see this all the time because, you know, you're, I know, I know from the conversation we've, we, we had before the show, like, you know, you're a super high caliber guy with a really great network. And, and so you must be telling people within these startups that you've been so successful, the same thing you're saying now, go and hire these great people. But how do you do that? How do you make your company attractive to someone who works at Google? How do you make your startup attractive? So it's kind of a two-part question. So the first part, you know, around team, 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 team. You know, I think you can look at someone's bona fides on paper and see you know, their CV and all that. You know, to us, the, the bigger signal is can they hire people as good or even better, better than them? And I think you know, if you look back to Google, you know, one of the key things was, you know, the founders will tell you, you know, we hired people that were amazing, that were far better than us at, at everything, you know, in coding or whatever have you. You know, we saw an opportunity to hire people that were great, and, and we did. We took advantage. I think, you know, not everyone... As that mindset, some people aren't really comfortable with hiring people that are better than them because it puts them you know, in, in a weird position. So I think from step one, you know, it does the team show that they can hire better than themselves. You know, hopefully by the time you know, we're investing, the team is of decent size. You know, oftentimes we'll look through you know the this, the list of employees or we talk to employees and you look at them and go, oh that's impressive. You know, how did you find that person from you know a big company to join you or how did you find this person with this you know award or whatever have you. Um, and as investors, same thing. I mean, we try and find these people and plug them into the right company. And of course, you know, it's a matter of, you know, good people, you know, want to work at good companies, right? You know, if you're, especially if you have particular domain knowledge, you know, people are attracted to like moths, they're attracted to the, the brightest bulbs around. So I think if you're finding a good company, if the company is truly good, you find people that have the same mission or the same passions and they're actually attracted. It might, it might make no financial sense to leave, you know, leave Facebook and leave your shares, but you, you believe in this company or you think it can really succeed or you're passionate about it. You know, it's, it, it's it, can founders convince people of that, you know, can they find, can they identify the kinds of people that should be working for them? Can they, you know, get introductions to them or find a way to them? You know, we obviously spend a lot of time trying to mine our network for people, you know, especially in America right now with politics. And you know, there's a lot of expats that want to come home. There's people and visas in America that are having trouble staying because of their visas. So, you know, all that's a buying opportunity for Europe, right? So if people are worried about their H-1B visa in the U.S., 
great, you know, we have a technician visa here that makes it really easy. If you're coming from the industry, you know, if you worked at a big tech company or a small tech company that was good, come on over. The, the, the doors are wide open. So I think, you know, it's a combination of you know, taking advantage of opportunity. You know, it's always serendipitous. It's meeting someone on a plane. It's, you know, just hustling and finding out, you know, these are my dream people because they have such domain expertise in this one particular technology. And then hunting them down and you know, browbeating them until they say, okay, cool, I believe in your mission. I'll join you. I'm in on that. I'm in on that. I love that. And that's actually really, really tangible advice that you give there. And thank you for sharing that. Um, first question, what is the dumbest thing you see founders repeatedly doing? Dumbest thing we see founders doing? Uh, hmm... Interesting or where question. Do you, or where do you see them wasting their time? Because I'm a big fan. Because I, I think there's a lot of times where people, people will just waste time doing things at the beginning. You're like, ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Like, I, I hesitate to call anything dumb because being a founder sucks. Like, for the most part, it's a very rewarding job. You know, it's a shitty, <laughs> shitty quality of life. You're living in a Ooh. shitty office. Your office has terrible coffee. You know, it has bad heating. The, the toilets are disgusting. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 that is the life of a startup, right? I mean, having having done it with our, our early fun days, you know, I know all the, the pain. So I hesitate to call any founders dumb in terms of because it's, it's a bad process until one day, you know, it sort of happens and it seems like an overnight success, but it's been, you know, a four year run to get to overnight success. Um, I think as far as investment, it's not impedance matching with the right investor. So it's not really doing the right research on who you're talking to. And, and I think, you know, people get desperate, of course, you know, when you're trying to raise money, there are times when you're desperate, you know, there, there are times when we were nearing the end of our fund close and, you know, we thought we'd had some money that we didn't get, you know, there, there are certainly times when you're sort of, you know, oh my gosh, how am I going to make payroll or how am I, how am I going to pay myself this week? Um, and I think, you know, founders don't always have the time or, or bandwidth to do research on who they're working with. But I think, you know, the most successful founders are the ones that can spend some time really understanding the background of who they're talking to, figure out with a laser focus, like who are the partners that will likely understand what I'm doing, who doesn't have a conflict or who has, you know, relevant adjacent experience. There's a lot of homework you can do. And if you have the luxury, well, I shouldn't say luxury, but if you have the time to do it, um, you know, that's a much higher success rate. I mean, I've seen a lot of founders that, you know, just kind of cold email and sometimes, you know, put everyone on the two line and send a very generic email oh, to, to 20 no, different investors. So all that stuff to me is kind of dumb. And I think, you know, I'm happy to, to look at cold emails. Yeah, if they're, if they're well-written and they show that someone's put a modicum of thought into why specifically might this interest me, you know, I'm, I'm happy to look at those. So I think the doors are actually kind of open, but it's sort of a, the system design where people that do dumb, you know, dumb stuff, like if you send a blast email, like don't send a blast email. At least put for your own for your own sake. Put everyone on the BCC line. Don't put everyone on the two line. It's funny. You know, probably once a month we get one of those to like half the investors in London. Um, but but I think you know you can improve the process a lot if you really understand you know, what's the background. You know, partners love to talk about their deals. You know what deals has that partner done. So when you go into the meeting, understand at least you know the last few deals that partner's done. It's all usually in crunch base or it's usually somewhere that's findable. You know, find, you know, figure out what to key on, you know, what are the, what are the characteristics of their last deals? You know, you can see what they like. If they've dated a certain kind of person the last four times, they're likely to date the same kind of person again. So you look for that kind of pattern matching, you know, what are they going to expect or what do they like or what are the similar things they've done? I think there's a lot of free work you can do to make that process a lot more streamlined. And likewise, you know, rule out people that aren't a fit. Like there's no sense wasting time on people that are going to, and oftentimes the ones that are the biggest time wasters are, are sometimes the friendliest. So you have a great meeting and then you walk out and say, I'm not sure what I even got out of that meeting. That person is not in, and then they you know, send a polite pass email a week later. Um, yeah, it's a lot of a lot of time wasted inadvertently with yeah. just politeness. Yeah, yeah, I get that. That's absolutely true. It's good advice. Okay, well, and what? So it might be that, but what is your what is your poster quote 
one piece of advice from your incredibly illustrious career and success investing? What is your one piece of advice you would give to founders? Big markets. Think about really big markets. And, and so there was a guy at Google named Jonathan Rosenberg. He was, um, I guess, the SVP of products. So he was like technically my, my boss's boss at Google. Um, he had been around the, around the Valley for a long time, but he, he was very trusted by the founders. And you know, his view was always, look, you know, find a, a very big ocean to surf in because you might be a really shitty surfer, but if you catch a big wave, you're going to have a great ride. If you're in a small ocean, doesn't matter how good a surfer you are, if the waves are all, you know, foot tall, you're not going to have a, you're going to have a shitty surf. So, you know, it's very good. It sounds very trite in California when I say it out loud, but, 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 you know, to think about like, you know, big markets forgive a lot of errors and every startup is going to make a lot of mistakes. So if you're in a really big market and you're fairly competitive, you can fuck up a lot of stuff and still survive. If you're in a really small market, even if you're really good and really smart, you know, probably the, this is the pattern we see the most is people that are going after really small markets where they do everything right, everything within their control, but they still don't really succeed or they just waste a lot of time because they're just in a small ocean. It's just not, does, it does, it's not that big. Mm, that's really good advice. Really good advice. I love that actually. Okay, and the last one, um, which, is, which is good. Um, when you come away from a meeting, so um, meeting with a founder for a first time or you get an email in for the first time, a lot of people have something that they get really excited about and they always repeat. So I'm, this, I'm the worst. If I have an interview with someone and they make me laugh, I always go, oh my God, that guy was hilarious. They're amazing. She killed me. <laughs> it's always the same. What are the, what are the characteristics or things you see in a pitch deck or type of industries that just get you really fired up? Um, and then when you go to your partner, you're like, bro, this, this was amazing. And you say, you find yourself saying it all the time. Honestly, in this industry, if it's anything but growth, I'd be surprised. I mean, to me, venture is about growth. It's about finding something that turns into a rocket ship, right? So, I mean, everything else, I mean, there's lots of sectors that I like and dislike. You know, I've done deals in sectors I don't really love, but the growth is, is so empirically good. You're like, I can't not do this deal. The growth is phenomenal. Again, you kind of do the homework afterwards, understand is it sustainable? Is it a big enough market? But to me, the one thing, if, if I see one slide in a deck, it's, you know, show me your, your, your MRR growth or your monthly sales or your monthly users. You know, if I'm seeing a you know, 15, 20% month on month growth consistently, you know, that, that's what shows me there's something there. If it's even bigger, that's even more, it's even, even better. Um, but you know, show me there's something that's growing about this business, even better, it, it's growing at, a, at an accelerating rate. That to me is the core of venture. Find any kind of thing that's growing fast and look if it can keep growing, if there's a natural big enough market where you can see it keep growing. The rest of it takes care of itself. You know, if you can get to the point where you're growing, you know, 15, 20% a month, you're probably doing something right. If you can keep doing that or at least understand why it's happening, maybe you just have a great app and people are finding it and it's naturally viral. Sometimes that's the case and it's you know, just the right place at the right time. But you know, it's that kind of thing I think that venture venture capitalists ought to be excited about. So that's what really, at the end of the day, drives value and drives growth in the fund. All right. Rob, this was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Good times. I can't wait to see you in the neighborhood now. <laughs>